0: Hello, and welcome back to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World discussion podcast loosely affiliated with the Dungeon World Discord. Endearingly affiliated with, I would say. Endearingly indeed. I am Arthur, or Art Projects, one of your co-hosts. And I am Eamon, or Voidlight, your other co-host. Now, we're going a little bit off of our usual agenda today, because we've got something a little special planned, inspired in part by discussions on the podcast channel And by the fact that we've just been interested in doing this for a while, today we are going to be taking one of our favorite segments to do and making it into the entire episode.
1: We're doing a little audio zine of sorts to take you on a journey through a bevy of inspirational material that you can plunder at will for your own games.
0: Prepare for the picture this episode. So we have a bunch of things to picture today, but I'd like to start, Eamon, with a highlight from a recent game that I would like also to treat as a picture of this, something that I encourage you to steal. How does that sound?
1: Absolutely. Go ahead. Was this from one of your con games?
0: This is from one of my con games. I'd like to give a shout out to, to Matt, who I met at PAX East while playing Games on Demand, and also to Matt's character, Candlewick, the Salamander Immolator. Now, I've expressed before that I am a little reluctant to allow con game players to use an emulator because I feel like sometimes people lean into the arsonist more than they lean into the cult leader. But I was smart and I actually put the cult leader part of it front and center when asked, Oh, is there a fire mage option? And when I said yes, but really, this is more of a cult leader, that really clicked with the player that was taking it. The player's name uh, was Matt. Matt decided to play a salamander after asking the classic question, well, what is a salamander? And being told that it is whatever he wants it to be. And what he came up with was something really special that I want to picture. So Candlewick is a salamander. He is house cat sized. He's very into collaboration, helping out, getting people where they're going, and making sure that he's visibly the person responsible for it. Candlewick is also, or at least Candlewick believes, that he is a pupa for an elemental god, and that all salamanders are, in fact, pupa of elemental gods. Pupa, as in intermediate
1: developmental stage, like insect. Exactly. Interesting.
0: You could call it. You could call it a nymph as well, although nymph is a loaded term in Dungeon World slash tabletop fantasy in general. But this concept that salamanders believe that they are the nymphatic or pupa stage of massive elemental deities, I think is really exciting. Because as well, there's a condition that triggers the metamorphosis, which is accumulation of enough followers. It comes together to be a really neat spin on the cult leader aspect of this that doesn't leave behind any of the weirdness that a salamander inherently brings into the game, into the setting. And it also, it was just so original and it gave me the opportunity to say, oh, well, are there water salamanders out there? Are there air salamanders? Go through all the sort of core elements. And the answer, of course, was yes. Salamanders believe that if they get enough followers in their chosen element, then they end up being, uh, you know, becoming gods. That is phenomenal. Yeah, shout out to Matt, who played Candlewick in that game and came up with this whole thing, because I practically consider that salamander canon now. <laughs>
1: I like it a good deal. I have a picture of this which flows on pretty neatly from that, especially in the concept of elementals and the planes. There's a pretty rich history in D&D and related fantasy games of having elementals be a thing and having the elemental planes be these other realms, however, wherever they're situated, however you get there, where they spring from. And especially in the Faerûn um, setting, this idea of this like ring or sphere of elemental energy surrounding the material plane, and the farther out you go in it, the, the more pure the elements get until you're just in a realm of pure fire or uh, an unending sea or a, a vacuous uh, space of, of just unending air or just solid earth in every direction until the elements become just elemental chaos and mix. And I like the idea of the world being surrounded by these other more extreme worlds. And I had the idea in one of my games of an elemental World Cup where on the material plane as a form of sports slash diplomacy, every, you know, whatever lunar cycle or uh, every 10 years, every century, whatever you want it to be, the elementals send emissaries and champions to have a sort of convocation uh, and pit fight at the same time. So they send a bunch of uh, champions to this neutral meeting ground in the material plane, to this gigantic arena that's this floating inverted ziggurat, which inside of it has multiple levels that people can fight on, each of which being the home turf for a different elemental group, and that um, there are also third parties that come to fight to win the favor of the elementals, and the PCs can potentially be one of those, as they were in my game. And I would like to talk about um, two uh, potential uh, dynamic arenas that I had come up with for this game um, that are interesting fighting spaces if that's all right.
0: Yeah, and this ties back, too, to what we talked about last week, about making your fighting spaces interesting.
1: Yes, so, so. this is both a, a situation if you um, want to have elemental uh, war-slash-diplomacy to be something in your games, and also uh, steal these arenas. So the first one was um, a the arena that was based on a truce between air and earth, which was a bunch of floating uh, earth motes that were all around and the PCs would have to jump and grapple from one to the other and take a lot of pot shots as the enemy, which started from the other side. And slowly... You, uh,
0: hang on. You say earth motes. Could you tell me a little bit more about
1: that? So earth moats are floating islands, so to speak. That that can be from the size of a, a rock that one person could barely stand on, that's all wobbly, that's floating, to, to very, very large, right? And, and this is in a lot of different... Um, Games, the idea of floating islands and things like that. Typically, mm-hmm. they're they're flat or thereabouts on the top, and then they have uh, earth trailing down on the bottom and particulates. Um, but this um, this was a, a stage that sort of developed as the players fought on it. So at first, it was a lot of loose a ring of loosely arranged floating earth moats that they were jumping from one to the other. And far below them, there was a different arena. They would fall per- potentially lethally down to if they had if they slipped. Um, but as the fight was going on, this ring of loosely connected or loosely arranged earth motes was slowly being drawn into the center, um, and eventually clicking all together to form a solid, um, almost Pangea-like structure. And when, as they came together, what they used to be a part of was becoming more clear, which was this, was this sort of, uh, stone garden with arches and statues and things like that, and including, uh, a, a, a shattered statue of a father holding a daughter that was only completed once all of the different earth motes came together. Like a piece of a head would come into place and like an arm would snap into place. And all of this made out of marble and stone and these different arches would come together, which just looked like a bunch of debris when it was all shattered. And mm-hmm. once they were all together, the stage would suddenly um, become different because there were suddenly like spirits that would awaken and things like that. And then after a few minutes of them being in there, it would break apart again. And so this is something that the, that the players could potentially exploit since they like would find out the pattern, like potentially partway through the fight and things like that. The other arena that I had come up with, um, was the one below that, which they could potentially fall into. And this one was in the shape of a cauldron. So once you entered the it it was hard to scramble back out because it's sort of mm-hmm. like being in a uh a half pipe. Um there's on, an overhang, right? Yeah, there's an overhang. And uh there are on, on the four cardinal directions of the overhang, there are these bronze um gargoyles that are in the shape of dragon heads with their mouths open. And there is uh there are chains underneath the chin of all of them. And if you pull on the chain, lava spouts out. So you can potentially fill the center of this with lava. Um, And uh, although the rim is big enough to stand on. So this is a sort of precarious thing where fighting on the rim is really difficult um, and it's easier to fight someone when you're not balancing precariously on the rim. But once you go into the center, that's potentially dangerous because Mm -hmm. lava could potentially fill it. Although the enemies that they were fighting were in this scenario were immune to the lava effect. So take that as you will.
0: Cool. So in my head, immediately I jumped to a player falls in and realizes the only way back out is to pull the chain, fill the thing with lava, and float out on the back of a, of a, kill, of a fallen foe. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Puzzles.
1: And the players don't necessarily know the rules of these spaces when they come into them, so those mm-hmm. things can be dynamically discovered as Total. well.
0: And the rules don't have to be specific. I am a big fan of changing the rules that I had planned in my prep when it would be appropriate to do so as the result of a six minus or a seven to nine consequence.
1: If a player's working theory about what something might be or how something might work is cooler than what you have planned, steal it.
0: Steal it. Yeah. Make your players do the work. The play to find out, effect- effectively what I would say is a, that's a play to find out axiom, is make your players do the work.
1: <laughs> or make them play, so to speak. Yes. All right, what, do you got? what do you got next, Arthur.
0: Cool. So, this next one is based on the conversation I was having with a coworker of mine. Uh, we were discussing names, and this is a man named Sudarshan. Uh, it's a, I believe, a Tamil name. And he talked a little bit about what it means and sort of the cultural history that it encompasses. And it broke down some of the etymology and talked me through it. And I think it's a really cool name and has kind of a really cool underlying meaning. So, his name is Sudarshan. Which, as he explained it to me, more or less corresponds with the idea of knowing oneself as a weapon against evil. It's sort of rooted in uh, Hindu mythology and Hindu uh, stories. and That the, the concept of all the negativity in the world and all the things that can mar your soul are things that you can fight off by knowing oneself. And the name itself actually comes from, I think, a combination of a legendary weapon and a legendary hero that was able to do so. And that got me thinking. You know, we tend to come up with sort of our fantasy name generator of choice, click generate whenever we need an NPC or we have our players come up with names. I love the idea and the thing that we see reflected in world cultures that names aren't just identifiers. Oftentimes there's a deeper historical connotation, which at least in my experience with Western names isn't always the case. You know, my name is Arthur. I don't really know if that has any underlying meaning to it, other than the fact that it is a family name. Various older members of my family, older relatives, have that name as well. So thinking about how there are so many people in the world for whom their their name has a deep underlying meaning, you know, that's just something that I don't see in my day-to-day. It's not something that immediately occurs to me. And so I'm now picturing the idea that in your fantasy realm, you should be coming up with what the names actually mean, what they correspond with, and use that as a way to inform your NPCs as you name them.
1: Arthur, just because I had to, since I, I think a lot about names, and also mm-hmm. about English and etymology, just because it's a, a geeky pursuit of mine, but the name Arthur is potentially derived from the Celtic elements Artos, which means bear, combined with, combined with Viros, which means man, or Rigos, which means king. Alternatively, it's considered to potentially be an obscure Roman family name, Artorias, Mm-hmm. and has a pati- particularly uh, drawn from British and Saxon history with King Arthur and all that. So, And just for the listeners, Amen means uh, strong defender or valuable guardian drawn from Celtic.
0: Yeah, that feels about right for you. <clears throat> I think that it's super cool, and I am drawing on that now as, What does your elven name mean in the context of elven philosophy? Heck, what do your human names mean in the context of human philosophy? It's just another way to inject flavor. And there's sort of the personal aspect as well. If your NPC has a name they really don't feel like they have grown into or that they don't feel like describes their their true philosophy, what does that NPC feel when they introduce themselves?
1: The concept of names is something that has a lot of um, potential for fantasy gameplay, Especially because true names is something that people talk about, and that's a thing that's often something that's a way to uh, have some sort of power over someone, especially a demon, and summon them. Mm -hmm. And the uh, you could you could have a PC that's just very or uh, or an NPC that's just very concerned with names and is always seeking the the real name of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And additionally. Just as much as a good name generator, Google Translate can be a great way of, for inspiration of making names. I was looking for a name of the sword that I got in a recent game uh, on this little quest when when the GM gave the uh, the signature weapon move to my character. And I was making this sword and I wanted to know what it was going to be called because the signature weapon should have a name. And my character follows this organization called the Silver Court. And so I looked up what the name for silver in Irish is and it's Ergiad. And I was like, that's amazing. That's going to be the, the name of the sword, is Ergyad. Um And there you have it. It was as simple as that. It sounded fa- fantasy enough. Um, I could even change a couple letters if I so chose just to um, make it fit and take whatever license you want.
0: Very cool. All right. Well, what, what's your next p- item to picture, Amen. So
1: sometimes when I'm in fantasy cities and I'm GMing fantasy cities, I want to make them feel familiar and let and yet alien at the same time just to signal that this isn't just medieval europe with a wizard walking around this Mm -hmm. is a place in a different in a different land um and that can be done to to a smaller or lesser degree and sometimes i just like small things that kind of say like no this is our world that isn't the real world and one of them that i came up with uh, in a game where the players were Um, Going through this massive uh, fantasy metropolis was that I wanted there to be fruit vendors all around that were like hawking their wares and things like that. And I said that they were um, selling one of the vendors was selling these bright red bananas and that his um, or what would appear to be bananas to to the player Mm -hmm. characters. Um, And that the the this stall was very very popular, and that they were they were spicy in, in flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this fruit it was a very very spicy fruit, and then that that started a popping up later in my game. That like they would see them at the banquet table of nobles, like later in the world, and and different things like that. And it was just something that became an almost an inside joke uh, in our games, but not just a joke, but like an, a set dressing. Where mm-hmm. even if we played a different game or in a different system, I could put a red banana in there and get a a wry glance from like players that had been in the previous game. And that's just a way to make something similar yet unfamiliar. You, you often see this technique used in, um, in sci-fi settings when, like, we see a shot of Coruscant in, in, in Star Wars. There'll be the, the steam rising from different vendor carts and and people, like, exchanging goods, like, in the corners. But mm-hmm. something about it will be alien, right? And that will signal to you that this is what you know, but in a way you haven't seen before.
0: I really enjoy that. In particular, I like your detail about the way that you can use it as a through line. You know, food is so important to us as people, and I feel like it doesn't come up in, at least it doesn't come up in my games very frequently. So, utilizing that as a way to give sensory information about how this world is alien to our own is really fun. Now, also, the idea of a spicy red banana is really doing it for me, so I'm going to have to figure out whether or not anything even remotely similar to that exists in real life. So that I can uh, <laughs> change up my snacking habits. That you can just fantastic. artificially
1: create that. I mean, if you just take a banana yeah. and like coat it in like habanero dust mm-hmm. or or or, uh, gosh, what's the what's the spicy sauce that starts with an S? Um, probably a lot, but anyway, you could make a spicy banana. I feel like.
0: Yes, I will report back with my spicy banana attempts in our next episode. Or in our, uh, our food-related bonus episode that we're going to start doing as well, because apparently that's what brand building is these days.
1: Yeah, that's our sister podcast, Eat to Find Out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, is this going to kill you? Only one way to know. <laughs> we, we made red bananas from paint.
1: That sounds like an in-fiction game show that will be in my next My next game is Eat to Find uh, Out. Your
0: next cyberpunk game or apocalypse world game? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's Fear Factor, but we ran out of things that were scarier than the outside, so... Cool. So, I have one more prepared thing to present today and picture this. I'd like you to pick... Oh, but it is a long and fleshed out one. It's also the setting for one of my current games, so I feel like I can really delve into it in detail, maybe discover some new stuff about the setting as we talk about it here today. Go for it. Take front and center. So, the place is jeraset the jeweled city of the clockwork coast. Its location on the easternmost point of the continent means that it has a strong affinity for sun magic. Sort of the unobstructed sunrise can charge the, uh, the potent, powerful gems that have accumulated in the city keep. And then that magic can be diffused throughout the day to do valuable things. Now, due to the fact that this potent magical energy exists in this city, colleges of mages have sprung up, especially over the last century, which means now more than ever there is this this advanced magic study that is happening here and advanced magical application, which of course has a compounding effect on increasing the wealth and power of the city itself. And it also makes the city sort of a clustering point, a place where the powerful magic users of the world are beginning to accumulate because there is so much interesting work to be done in understanding this deeper mystery of the world and the cosmos itself that is facilitated by the abundance of sun magic here. Which means, of course, an accumulation of young sorcerers who come here to learn and then end up forming their own colleges, or their own apprenticeships, or joining into the arcane research of a more experienced colleague. And these are young sorcerers who are made prematurely wealthy by the explosive growth that Jeraset is undergoing. And there is our conflict, because as we've seen in particularly coastal America over the last 20 years or so, when a sudden explosive growth happens due to an exponential improvement in our ability to do something, in this case magic in the real world technology, then it becomes a gathering point for people who are able to harness that growth in order to accomplish something for themselves, which has a tendency to disenfranchise and push out the existing communities there and change the face of the cities really, really rapidly. So one interesting thing to do is... Have your PCs exist in the aftermath of that growth, or exist in a way that is opposed to it, or have your PCs form a mage college, and then have to struggle to make their mage college the best one in town, one that actually accomplishes something. Stealing the powerful jewels from other colleges along the way, perhaps uh, Saving the day when a massive demon is brought up from the bowels of the earth—all sorts of other options exist in Jeruset, the jeweled city of the Clockwork Coast.
1: I was actually taking some notes as you were as you were saying that um, of just I could keep track of my impressions because there was a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking as you were as you were laying it out um, as soon as you said that it was in the easternmost point of the continent so there was a strong affinity for sun magic i thought of the idea that as the sun rises and uh, streaks across the sky its power weakens as the day wears on so mm-hmm. sun sun based spells are most powerful at dawn and least powerful at dusk and there should be this like mystical day night cycle that people are always looking to do their strongest magic and attacking mm-hmm. at dusk is like strong for some types of magic and weak for others is a way to add dynamics um, potentially there. It could even work into the mythology of your world. If you're like, well, well, why does the sun weaken as it go on? Like, wh- what's going on there? Because it doesn't have to be the sun in our world. I thought of jeriset as being a magical allegory and a slightly steampunk, perhaps, allegory for San Francisco, mm-hmm. especially when you were saying that young sorcerers um, or you like this. there's a lot of new money coming in as as people are just capitalizing on this boom. It made me think a bit of Kaldesh from The Magic of the Gathering um, different planes, um, and how Keldesh is all about uh, innovation, and it's this, like, shining, shining city where a lot of tech is going on, but in a fantasy world. Um, and I also um, thought of what I'll probably, something from my games that I almost forgot about that I should have mentioned as a picture of this, but I want to hear I guess your reactions to the reactions.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, in particular, I think your your point about it basically being San Francisco is very apt, While I don't live in San Francisco, I do live someplace where a similar thing is happening at a slower pace. And as someone who's on the young sorcerer side of the coin, it's something I try to be very conscious of when I think about where I live and the impact that I'm having. So it, it can be sort of a fun inversion of that and a way to explore those issues when i go the other direction with my in-person game of other people who live in town and are on all sides of the issue
1: so picture this you have a metropolis this booming metropolis and the players get a chance to view it in its heyday and also after the calamity and Mm. this can happen um either at the front and tail end of a campaign or or after a time skip or something like that, or both together in close succession um, in a way that I've seen done um, in a game that I played in and also in a video game that I played. in. Players out there who have ever played Titanfall 2 will recall that there's a certain point in the campaign where you enter this facility... And time is sort of flip-flopping unstably back between before Mm -hmm. it was destroyed and when it was destroyed. The best single-player level
0: in a video game in the last probably five to ten years, I would say.
1: It's it's quite nice. You get a device that allows you to control it at will. And so, like, Mm -hmm. for example, there might be a door with automated defenses, but you just switch to when it was destroyed, and then Mm -hmm. you can walk through. And there might be something where um, the destruction of it is a problem, and so you have to switch to back when it was functional and unobstructed and go through. And I played in a game with a very interesting um, setup where two players wanted to GM at the same time. Um, and they, they among them, and th- these were players that I had previously jammed for, and they wanted to take turns jamming so that they didn't have the burden of um, jamming for long sessions, and they also wanted to play. And I was like, well, we could probably work something out. And then what they came up with was one player created this metropolis, and um, in the future there was some sort of calamity, but he didn't define what it was. And so he, like, kind of laid out this setting and everything. And the other player defined this ruin. And, like, he defined what would happen in the Calamity. And my PC was, um, like, in the Metropolis doing something when suddenly he just himself was flashed forward into this ruined world. And randomly would flop back. And the way that happened was they had a timer, like a real-world timer of 15 minutes. And so one player would GM for 15 minutes. And then play would swap. Like, wherever we were, in the middle of a fight, a conversation, anything, we would swap, and the other player would take over as GM, and then that player would resume his spot as a player character. And so I was the only constant between two timelines, and there was this character that I had as my point of contact in the future, and this character that I had as my point of contact in the past. And I was kind of trying to X-Men Days of Future Past style, use the past to avoid the future. And it was really interesting, and it was a way for two players to um, both have their foot in playing and I also have their foot in jamming. and the setting itself was really cool that like in the past I would try to bury something mm-hmm. and, and see if it was still there in the future and my my character was trying to figure out what was going on. Additionally um, it was fun to play to find out that we didn't actually know exactly how this all happened and also the ability to exploit the fact that time passes differently in game and out of game. That it was always 15 minutes that we would switch out of game but in game mm-hmm. that could be a day passed or it could be like like seconds that we barely right. did anything in play and suddenly we have to switch so mm-hmm.
0: you can go past the palace guards in the future and then when it clicks back to the past you've already surpassed you've already circumvented that obstacle yeah you know you get you You basically get all of the time travel puzzles that any video game especially zelda game or or fantasy role-playing game in general has ever done with the flexibility i'm I writing the, all the this stuff game. down because yep, i'm going to steal this Because I want this very, very much. This is amazing. Ooh. Mmm. Mmm. Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Already I'm brimming with ideas for stuff that I'm going to do in my next game with the, uh, what have been affectionately referred to as Group A in the Dungeon World Discord's podcast channel. (laughs) The people that I play Dungeon World with in person once a month or so. Oh, that's wonderful.
1: I hope you are brimming with ideas as well, listeners, because
0: we've got more. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's check our time mark. We are at about half an hour at this point. I feel like we should probably go for, you know, another 15 minutes or so with these if we can make it, and then we'll transition into our emails and wrap it up for the day.
1: Sure. So let's, uh, I'll put it to you, Arthur. Do you want to hear a front,
0: an NPC, or some spells next? Why don't we do the front first? Because I don't think we've done too many fronty things yet. And then, depending on timing, maybe we'd see some spells. Sure. We've had a lot of setting stuff. Mm-hmm. So here is a um, a front
1: that I really enjoyed from the published um, Dungeon World supplement, Grimworld, which um, is is mainly a collection of a lot of new material for um, Dungeon World. It really doesn't change the rules all that much. Um, the only significant change in Grimworld, if you haven't heard of it, is they add death moves. So every class has a special thing that happens and the trigger is when your character dies. So they try to make death something that you will embrace a little bit more, in addition to making the game slightly more lethal by giving a lot of very powerful monsters. Mm -hmm. So this is a front that they provide as an example in the back of the book, Um, and this is called The Azerine Burden, and I love it. So when the players kill a creature, which can be anything you wish, with blue skin, its corpse dissolves and leaves behind a blue gemstone that hums with power. When the gem is touched, it immediately melts into the skin of the person who touched it, disappearing and turning the person a permanent shade of blue. When the play- What the players will soon discover is that one of them has just joined the cursed ranks of the Azurine. The infected person can immediately feel a subtle beckoning in multiple directions, which is towards the other infected. The players will find out more about the Azerine through their own research or from dealing with the Cerulean Order legends say that if an Azerine manages to consume all the gemstones, they will hold enormous power. And so it provides three mini factions that uh, that um, have uh, something at stake. There is the Blue Goliath. This is a massive giant that has recently been infected by the Azerine. And once one of the players become infected, he slowly starts following the player's path. And so the players will find um, towns that have been recently destroyed because the giant has passed through them and is trying to find them uh, and eventually the grim portent would be that the Goliath appears on the horizon and attacks because mm-hmm. he's being called to this blue player to try to kill them and get their power. There's the harpies of the Sapphire Peak that uh, the players themselves might feel called towards, um, and they have some fun stuff going on with them to kidnap one of the players, the others, and have to rescue them. And then there's mm-hmm. the aforementioned Cerulean Order, which is an ancient order that seeks to um, eradicate the Azerine by hunting down and killing everyone who's infected. And um, there, a, a cerulean assassin might might appear and make an attempt on that player's life. Um, and then there's some optional twists um, and and things at stake, um, and a cast which would be the the things we just mentioned: the blue goliath, the queen of sapphire peak, and the head of the cerulean order, uh, as the dungeon world uh, sourcebook says, um, to construct a construct a front. And some of the things at stake are how are the players going to react to being infected? Will they seek to cure them or attempt to gather all the Azerine together? Uh, What is the thing that happens when all the Azerine is brought together? An optional twist are um, there's more Azerine than just the two mentioned here. Uh, Being infected causes powerful benefits or potentially powerful detriments or both. Or the head of the Seralian Order is potentially playing everyone and they want to... um, actually get all the azran to themselves for themselves mm-hmm. or they're secretly infected and cover it up.
0: This is very cool. I have a couple of specific things that occurred to me as you described it Go and I'd it. like to throw a couple of them your way. 100 blue tinted people are in an airplane and they all drop out over an island and over the course of 30 to 45 minutes they fight to the death until eventually only one blue-tinged person has picked up every single Azurine shard
1: <laughs> am i allowed to see am i allowed to say pubg on the air
0: yes i think that this is a really interesting way to set up a battle royale style everyone accumulating power and then losing it instantly when they are killed by something else and then they pick that up that's i think if you wanted to do a one-shot that's very combat-focused or that has an interesting combat mechanic, that's a really interesting way to do it. And it really reminds me of loot games in general, uh, or, you know, loot, the the loot systems that battle Royale, Battle Royale games tend to have. Hey, but then I also have the, this other idea. Go ahead. You said that the gem materializes when its bearer is killed, right? Yeah. So... Supposing the infected player rolls last breath and gets a seven to nine. I would have death provide the following bargain. You can return, but I keep your infection for myself. And now, no matter what, death has some part of the whole in, you know, beyond the black gates, which means... So if you wanted
1: to complete it, you would have to somehow kill death. Precisely. Uh-huh. That puts a wrinkle in many plans.
0: Yeah. I, like th- I really like using death as a place to hide things, as a last breath uh, Last breath, seven to nine bargain. I've done that in a few different games before where a last breath has tied with it, oh, now there's something on the other side that you're going to need to get back at some point. Something, or in some cases, someone And all this talking about death, actually, and death moves generally, also reminds me of one thing that I would like to propose for another picture of this. In our picture of this episode. Something that just occurred to me and is not on my list that I brought with me.
1: We do play to find out here.
0: That we do. This is actually based on something that my character went through in one of my first ever Dungeon World games. I'd like you to picture Schofield and Castor Walletsworth. Fighters, both son and father, respectively. Castor Wallaceworth has been summoned north to the Dwarf Mountains, for his old comrade in arms has been slain, and his corpse has been stolen by a necromancer. Now, in the process of retrieving his fallen friend, Castor meets his untimely end at the hands of a goliath or a giant or some other very tall thing. I don't remember specifically what kind of tall thing it was, but he was flung off of a cliff. And on his last breath, I if I recall correctly, I think I ended up rolling a 10 plus, but I don't th- think we really understood how to do last breath at the time. And what we went with was that S- Schofield Wallaceworth his son would be summoned to take up his father's mantle at the last, at the point of his last breath. Now, where we ended up going with this is this concept that the Wallaceworth family line is cursed, and that the fighter role passes down from father to son. When the father is killed, the son takes it on, until eventually they're go- they face a foe that they're able to bring down to break the curse. We never really established what breaking the curse would look like, but... The, uh, the core thing was that it would require falling to a worthy foe in glorious combat. If you were the worth to finally die properly and not by poor luck, then you would receive, uh, then you would break the curse for your children and their children and so on and so forth down the line. Which was interesting to me for two reasons. One, the, that, meant, that means that every worth must have had a son at some point. And two, Schofield, who I ended up playing as my next PC after Caster went on beyond the Black Gates, uh, Schofield deliberately didn't have a son. And what we ended up deciding was that if Schofield ever fell, then a dwarven NPC that we had met far previously with which he had had a brief fling would be the next character I played as she was pregnant with his son, if it ever came up. So I was really looking forward to the opportunity to play a pregnant dwarf woman, but that never ended up quite coming together. Huh. These are the Walletsworths and their curse.
1: Picture this. I have a, I have a penchant for uh, characters that are primed to set up a, a potential next character. And that's a, a a reason that I put in play to not get too attached to my characters. Because when mm-hmm. I'm a player, I want to be able to embrace death if it comes. Because I always encourage my players to do that as a GM. I once had a character... Um, that I was playing from Grimworld, um, or I think from one of the playbooks they released af- like as supplemental material after the main Grimworld book, mm-hmm. uh, which was this psionic character, and all their powers were dream-based, as if this character, like they, they kind of thought they were in a dream, and so they, the world obeyed dream logic as at their whims, like they could conjure weapons out of nowhere and stuff, and if this character ever died, the death move specified that something everyone took for granted was actually an illusion, and I said that that thing was the player themselves. And so, if this if this character ever died, um, another character somewhere in the world would wake up and and be like, "What just happened? I, I've been dreaming this whole time." Oh wow! And that character, yeah, and that character was um, a latent magic user mm-hmm. that really didn't understand their powers at all, and only in this deep coma that they've been in could they use them, and they manifested as this other character. Cool. And the reason was that character was like. An, an addict or something. And so I, I would play them after the fact,
0: but mm-hmm. yeah, I haven't that's seen very come cool. to fruition yet. Yeah. One um, thing, one thing that I really have matured into and I, I didn't handle, let me put it this way. I didn't handle my first character dying particularly well because that was a very new experience and it was fairly early in the campaign. So having a, a, a next pair of shoes to slip on made handling that emotionally as a player much easier to do. So, for you GMs out there who are afraid of killing player characters because they're worried about the emotional consequences in real life, it's an option. Last Breath should be considered like a really exciting new horizon rather than a sunset.
1: There are also um, compendium classes that um, trigger if you've been beyond the black gates and things like that. Um, And also things where, like, for playing as undead. So a lot of times when a character dies, I'm like, what do you want to happen next? Do you have an idea for another character that you want to just spin up? Uh, Do you want something related to this character? Like you can play as their sister, their apprentice that's now out to avenge them. Um, I've let people play as their animal companion before, if it was significant enough, although I do that less often. Um, I've had people play on as a ghost or as a revenant or as some other undead where they are wanting death to be an important part of that Um, and such and such, so... Would you like to hear some Speleo spells?
0: Let's hear some Speleo
1: spells. So from the incredible um, supplement and uh, source book, Veins of the Earth, by uh, Patrick Stewart and Scrap Princess from the Legends of the Flame Princess publishing imprint, Mm -hmm. um, we have Speleo spells, which are spells that can only be found and learned, at least in the core setting, uh, deep under the Earth. And from the isolation of these communities, they have their own very esoteric spells that are nothing like your traditional invisibility and fireball and all that Um, and i picked three that i quite like Um, one is blood into rope this spell allows the player to uh, perform bloodletting on themselves uh draining their own blood somewhat to weave it into a red rope and this rope is non-animate but it will unknot on command which makes it quite useful for climbing which Mm -hmm. is something that you have to do very often in the Um, verticality that's often found in uh, caves and underground, which this setting emphasizes, where climbing is really important. There's a whole climbing system. Um, It counts as a magical rope, which also means that it could be used for uh, potentially strangling a ghost or things like that. Um, The rope is about 30 feet long per hit point sacrificed. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a spell right there. Also, encouraging the players to damage themselves in order to fuel magic is just an interesting thing within itself. So it has to Um, be your own blood. Yes,
0: your Okay. Own blood. So, hear me out on this one. Go ahead. If I have just defeated someone with a compatible blood type, can I let my own blood, but rig up some kind of Mad Max Fury Road-esque blood bag system from my downed foe in an attempt to rejuvenate myself as I go? Like, does is it just blood that has gone through my own veins, or is it blood that I have created myself from scratch That's the, that makes the rope? That's the real question I have right now.
1: If I was your jam, I'd allow it. Thank um, you. I'd also allow, uh, in a magical duel, uh, like the 7 to 9 and 6 minus results in the casting of this spell would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. I would allow someone to um, harness the fact that you just magically imblu- imbued all your own blood to um, control you as a puppet for a limited time, sort of mm-hmm. bloodbending style from the Glass Airbender, nice. and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Another spell we have here is Worthless Corpse. Um, this spell... Um, Allows the player to make themselves appear to be, or the the character to make themselves appear to be uh, nothing but a worthless corpse, um, so that they'll be overlooked. Um, It says, appearing to be dead is not too useful underground because corpses are resources, but this spell makes the body of the target appear not simply dead, but utterly worthless, not worth investigating, without even marrow to crack open and eat. And it says, all observers, including allies, Um, although you could adjudicate that differently, will believe that the body of the target is dead, even if they saw them casting the spell. Should the corpse get up and walk, it will provoke horror and uncomprehending disgust. All present, including allies, must, and then some uh, mechanics, follow. But you could do this as a way, it's a form of invisibility, right? That, like, you just become trash, like people overlook you. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, in a a fiction-appropriate way, an interesting way, that you make yourself appear to be um, not only dead, but just utter scrap to be overlooked, and also has built-in potential ways that it could backfire, right? If you can't turn this spell off, all your mm-hmm. friends think you're dead, and they don't understand why. Um, the third spell that I have here is Vampire Counsel, which I think is an amazing spell. This spell requires two close friends to spill each other's blood. It summons a member of the vampire court to deliver legal advice for the caster. The vampire, <laughs> the vampire summoned will be 70% of the time human,
0: <laughs> sorry that 30%. really got me that's really good
1: this is an amazing spell trust me it goes on
0: okay sorry
1: yep 30 percent of the time the vampire will be some other humanoid race but highly intelligent the vampire is fully trained and expert lawyer in every known legal system the vampire will serve in a legal capacity only and will do nothing illegal there are of course gray areas They will never engage in a combat of any kind except verbal combat. They will serve as long as they are fed one pint of blood a day, and there is more legal work to do. Other creatures will react exactly as if a vampire had suddenly appeared in their midst. However, if they examine their records, they will find that the vampire is a registered member of the bar in that polity and is qualified to represent the caster and associates in court. People have been arrested for casting vampire counsel, but never
0: convicted. That is the best. Wow! Because of course,
1: vampires are the best lawyers. Of in the course,
0: world. they are. They understand that you're not allowed to cross the threshold without permission. The most and they're th- ancient. Yeah, and they're blood sucking.
1: So those are some of my favorite spells. I like spells that are weird and situational, mm-hmm. um, especially because the player probably already has several good utility spells. There are two great supplements out there that are definitely worth um, checking out. One of them is called um, Wonders, uh, Witch, Witchcraft and Wonders, or something like that. We'll I'll I'll link that one in the description. And there's a sequel called Magic and Malaisons mm-hmm. that are two um, things designed for any OSR setting and can easily be adapted to dungeon worlds that just provide a bunch of spells in weird schools of magic. So just to expand your spell lists, one of the spell um, schools is Rope Tricks. So they're all spells involving ropes. Um, expanding on the classic d and spell rope trick. One of those is a spell called um, uh, Cat's Cradle where the player like creates all these different uh, figurations of rope in their hands and can conjure different items based on what they create. That was a, an amazing one mm-hmm. that I saw. Um, and, and on and on. There, there's a lot of really cool spells in there and um, they pr- even provide tables for potential catastrophes if the spells go wrong. So like examples on what might happen on a 6-. minus, Super tight.
0: Very cool. Well, I think that's going to do it for Picture This today, which means it's time for our next official segment of the week. What's in that inbox, Eamon? So, this one is near and dear to my heart. We have um,
1: an email from Colin, aka Hobbitmeister, on the Discord, and I know him as GM in the play-by-post game that I play on on Discord. Um, I signed up for this game just through an an LFG looking for a game post in the LFG channel on the Discord, and have been really enjoying it so far. And Colin says, So, I was listening to one of the latest episodes, and you talked a bit about tables and changing aspects of the game and hacking things to fit your own table's preferences. I was wondering if you have any personal methods that you use to homebrew or to change certain rules or aspects of Dungeon World. I have a few things that I suggested to my table that I think can make the game flow better. This is still Colin, not me. Cantrips and rotes, he says, these are the most basic of magical effects. As such, I do not require the wizard or cleric to roll to cast these spells unless they are in a combat circumstance. The wizard trying to cast light in a goblin's face to blind it would require a roll, for example. Casting light mm. on their staff as they enter the goblin caves would not require a roll.
0: Ooh, interesting. I already I have a, a, a qualm with that. Would, would you mind if I just quickly jumped in with my qualm? Are you going to
1: say magic should be unpredictable and dangerous? Would no, I'm
0: going to say that the world should be unpredictable and dangerous, and anything that facilitates the rolling of dice should be something that we encourage at our tables, because we are supposed to be thinking dangerously. Which isn't to say that every single time that a wizard casts a spell, it must be rolled for. But I would I would hesitate to just blanket say, if it's combat, you roll. If it's not, you don't roll. Because there are so many dangerous things in the world that happen outside of combat, and the opportunity to make a move to represent those dangers is something that we as GMs should be looking forward to.
1: Sure, he's saying cantrips specifically right. uh, require no role. Yep, of I, I follow. But I see where I, I, from. I, yeah.
0: I specifically think I put I personally feel like that. I do not think that that was would be something that would work at my table, for instance.
1: Certainly, um, it is a, a good principle in, in general though that if you are looking to speed up your game. Um, and you wa- are looking to hack something or to change something, and something requires a role that you don't like. You can certainly um, uh, give a player as a freebie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, is something that uh, can has has definitely valid uses in different areas. Yeah, and don't forget totally to look at the, the triggers.
0: Rest. You know, there are times when yeah. a move oh, yeah. doesn't trigger, even though it usually the same description narratively might trigger the move generally.
1: Yeah, I just listened to one of the um, the new episodes of the intro to Dungeon World little mini series that Discern Realities is doing, and they were talking all about how hack and slash does not always trigger mm-hmm. Like, be, pay attention to if, if they can't feasibly engage someone in melee like if the enemy is asleep or the enemy is way too powerful then it should be something else and not hack yeah. and slash alright let's get on with the, the last tail end of the email so he says he also removes complications from certain moves he says this is a bit more general but coming to a dungeon world from D&D I have always been somewhat confused as to why some moves or spells that have been brought to dungeon world are so potentially dangerous as to make the player never use them One example is the Polymorph spell. Even on a successful cast, there is still a downside to using it. If the player casts Polymorph in my game, I don't add the GM downside to it as well. Called Shot is another move that doesn't come up often because the target has to be surprised or defenseless. I change it so that the ranger can't just deal damage without rolling, but that they can target heads, limbs, and legs of a target without needing to surprise Or catch them defenseless, Mm -hmm. adding more utility to the move and giving it the idea that this is an expert archer. There are some other little things that I change in the games I run, but I'm interested to hear if you do anything similar in your games or if there are aspects of the game that you bend to fit your ideas better. I'm loving the podcast and was thrilled to hear Voidlight mention the PvP game that he's in and I'm running. He's referring to the time when I mentioned him giving mm-hmm. the signature weapon move as loot. Yeah, looking forward to future episodes, Colin, aka Hobbitmeister, on the yeah. Discord.
0: Well, thank you so so much for writing in, and uh, I, I'm sorry to have immediately jumped on the one thing in your email that I disagree with because the rest of it I totally am there for. In particular, looking at the level five enchantment polymorph that the wizard spell set has, I definitely am looking at these bullet points and thinking that it's a very strange gameplay choice. It's not totally alien to the wizard playbook generally, but... And without getting into too many specifics of the of the things you brought to the table, but I, I do think that they're worth discussing. Um, I would say that it might be an opportunity for a Defy Danger, maybe a triggering Defy Danger int, to try to contort the spell into not having any downside at all. Because I do think the downsides presented here are a good way for a GM to have a narrative impact on what the wizard is doing. I also i think I agree that making these the the thing that always happens isn't as much fun and kind of discourages their use. So, very good thing to be on the lookout for there. Now, to your deeper point. What do we do at our tables? What rules do we change? What parts do we hack as a way to make sure that we have the optimal amount of fun? Amen. Well, one
1: that I definitely um is coming to mind right now is flex casting and uh risky casting if a wizard for example has forgotten a spell or something like that um or if they have they want to like alter what a spell should do like change the text slightly or make it do more uh like push it into an area that it was clearly not designed to be used for Mm -hmm. um i'll often let them try um but let them know that they're they're really playing with fire here that they that they are pushing magic um and that the the results could be catastrophic. Um, This is kind of what the sorcerer in uh, in D&D 5th edition is designed for. Like, oh, they're special because they can actually mold their spells. I like any magic user to be able to do Mm -hmm. that. Um, And it's a certain world-building choice. Um, You could decide that magic is so specific that unless things are followed to the letter, um, the magic simply doesn't happen. But I think that's a lot less interesting than people doing magic all wrong and creating all kinds of chaos. Um, Another thing that I definitely do is... I have a serious conversation at the beginning, not I mean, not super serious, but have a conversation with my players at the beginning of a, a game or campaign on how we want to treat health and hit points because I don't like the idea of, uh, the sort of video game-esque idea of a player taking like a full round to the chest or like a bunch of sword slashes and only once the last hit point goes off are they suddenly like out of action. Um, I typically treat health as stamina. And so um, anyone who takes an arrow to the face or a sword to the neck unprotected is is dead rolling last breath yeah right unless unless there's going to be some some magic at stake or something fictionally that they could withstand that like troll's blood or Mm -hmm. a potion or something but um we i just we have our fictional positioning such that in a fight taking hit point damage doesn't necessarily mean actually getting stabbed Mm -hmm. it means that you are your your defenses and good technique is being worn down until the point when your last hit point is lost um, you've suddenly taken a, a, f- a wound that matters. You've suddenly taken something serious. So instead of just bruising and and people battering against your shield and and your, your footing and, and just becoming so tired that you can't hold up anymore, you are now really hurt. And this makes a lot of sense with the fact that hit points replenish almost like 50% just by sleeping. Mm-hmm. You know That wouldn't happen if it was an arm getting cut off. And then any other like serious damage that's lasting, like someone losing a limb or someone contracting a long-term thing, We'll typically represent with um, the disabilities. Is that what they call them in Discord? Uh, debility uh,
0: yeah.
1: Debility. The debilities, as well as specifically writing them down on your sheet. I like players to keep track of their scars. Mm-hmm. It's a more like gritty um, way of of playing. Where if you if you lose a hand, like that's going to matter in the future. Like you, you might need to learn how to fight with the other hand, or um, if you are need to climb, like the other players are going to have to help you, like. That will stay with your character for a long, long time. It's not just the next scene will get a new hand. Unless you want to play in a lighter, more lighthearted way. Mm -hmm. But I I definitely like um, redefining how we think about hit points. And that is informed by playing certain other games, especially Into the Odd and things
0: like that. Right. I think a lot of Apocalypse, uh, Powered by the Apocalypse games, use the concept of harm clocks instead for this exact reason. Yeah. That it's weird to say, oh, I take 20 damage. I take 2 damage. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, Right, and you can kind of, as G- GMs, we can narrate around that. I'll typically say, oh, the goblin is going to jump at you with his knife and plunge it into your armor, and then I'll roll damage, and it'll be a two, and they've got three armor, and then, you know, that changes the narration into, but his his knife can't penetrate through your plating, and you brush him aside deftly. Um, You know, basically, my go-to is, if you get hit for damage, it's a shallow wound until... Suddenly, when you're at your last breath, it's a deep wound. And that is not as satisfying as, say, what uh, a harm clock lets you do, where there are different yeah. levels of harm that push you closer and closer to your last breath.
1: The idea of a harm clock um, allows the mechanic that once you're past a certain segment or slice, like once you're past nine o'clock, mm-hmm. going back is tricky. Right. Like now you're you're in a critical condition. And if you wanted to add some stuff like that to Dungeon World, there's so much stuff you can do. Totally. Health. So this is a very hackable area. You could say that below certain thresholds, like below 5 HP or below 10, um, now certain thing like it, you can only heal in X way, or you are going to suffer X penalty. And a lot of games do this, where once you fall down to a certain health level, you're going to be taking mechanical penalties. Um, you might say that they have a minus one ongoing if they're at 5 HP or less, you know, that, that sort of thing is really easy to do in Dungeon World. Um, alternatively, you could say that, um, if they take a certain amount of harm all at the same time, you have to take more than 10 damage from a single blow. Like that is something that's going to be treated differently. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things you can do to play around there.
0: Yeah. That all sounds reasonable to me. Uh, any other hacks that you use to make things quicker at the table?
1: For myself, um, I'm looking at his list here. I pay a lot of attention to when the players, um, don't need to roll, um, even some things that they're trying to do because it's their specialty, like uh, picking a lock or or checking for traps. If there aren't any, um, if there's no time pressure and if there's no danger, a lot of times I'll just have them narrate doing it mm-hmm. in, um, and make it interesting and have it be fictional before I'll go to the dice. Another thing is sometimes, um, what am I thinking of here? Y- you say something and I'll come back because I, I just lost it. Keep going.
0: Alright, well, thinking through some of the hacks that I use at the table, since a lot of what I do is early sessions, one-shots, con games, that kind of thing, there are a couple of shortcuts that I'll use in order to make sure that people are still having fun at the table. One of those is sort of ignoring load. Load is a really important mechanic, I feel like, for longer games. You know, it's not narratively interesting if I can cart around eight swords, the eight different swords that I've picked up along the way, and then also pick up a whole chest of treasure and carry it over my shoulder and not have any... Uh, mechanical downside to doing it. But at the same time, in a one-shot, frequently you won't accumulate enough stuff for load to matter in the first place, so I'll frequently just skip it entirely. It doesn't end up being that fun. I think it's consistently the least interesting part of video games and crunchier role-playing games, and it's easy enough to introduce later in a longer game as they sort sort of grow out of a session zero or a session one.
1: If you want to make load interesting and load matter, um, a lot of times that's going to mean changing other things about the world and the way the game is set up, and other games have done that and done it very well. So if you want to play in a very survival-y game where um, choosing whether to carry more light or more food is like a decision that really matters and that type of thing, there are games out there that do it very well. Uh, The Veins of the Earth, if you play it as the actual mechanical system that it's written for, um, is very much one of these, where light in that setting is literally considered to be money. Like, every hour of light is a loom, and that's considered to be money down in the in the veins. Uh, and sometimes it's more important for you to have light than have food, literally, yeah. because you'll starve slower than you'll get killed if you don't have light. Cool. That kind of uh, reminds systems... me of the,
0: uh, the, I think it's the Metro games, wherein bullets are also currency, and so you can choose to spend them oh, or yeah. shoot them.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. I've seen teeth also be a currency. Mm. Um, in, in orc civilizations, I think in the Warhammer universe, okay. orcs have... Teeth is their currency, so even if an orc is broke, uh, once their teeth grow back, like they'll, they'll at least have some change to start from. Yeah, uh, interesting. That, that type of stuff is fun. So, so they have sort of that a universal be, a basic <laughs> income
0: of mouth parts. Huh.
1: <laughs> that's that's basically a picture of this. I could see uh, teeth being used as currency in a car- carcidon or
0: like yeah. shark person society. Now we're talking. One last of picture of this: teeth as universal basic income. Pay off your student loans by donating molars.
1: I wish. Yeah, if only.
0: Actually, I don't. I yeah, I, yeah. now that I say it out loud, I chew a lot more than I... Well, eh. Yeah, I chew a lot is, I guess, really the core point that I'm trying to get at here. Probably should keep <laughs> those molars around. Dental costs alone. Ugh.
1: I do want to ask you what you do um, for a called shot. Because not just in, within the ranger move... But this is something that pops up mm-hmm. all all the time in, in RPGs, especially with new players, where someone says, I attack him and I go right for the head. Like like if this yeah. attack finishes, like I want to I wanna kill him. Like where someone specifically says they want to do some specialty combat maneuver, like they're sniping mm-hmm. someone or they want to hamstring someone or they want to um, do a very specific attack. How do you adjudicate yeah. those? So
0: usually I'll treat it, you know, I'll look at the list of moves and see which one it actually triggers hack and slash for instance is sort of the go to when someone describes using a melee weapon against another melee weapon wielding foe but just because hack and slash could ordinarily trigger doesn't mean that it always necessarily does if someone is trying to use their warhammer to to take someone down to the ground and they su- then i will typically i will typically trigger hack and slash there because it's still engaging in combat but then i'll let the fictional positioning reflect the fact that yes they also swept them off their feet in addition to the damage that they did because it, when a player's... The more specific a player gets with their move, the more specific I can get with a move in response on a fail. It's one of the same reasons why I'll allow things like group attacks or dual building. Because I can show the downsides to that as a move against them on a 6-minus or a 7-9 when appropriate. Now, for the called shot specifically, I've never really had an issue with it in any of my games. I I'm, I'm thinking back. I've had a lot of rangers because people like animal companions. And... Pretty consistently, I think that when a player really wants to make a called shot, they have the opportunity to do so. And I think that might just be a GMing style thing. I have a tendency to, to allow for the opponent to be surprised or defenseless when it is appropriate to give the ranger an opportunity to spotlight into an opportunity to use a called shot. Um, and that might also just be the fact that I frequently run con games or, or games with players who are relatively new. They see when an enemy is defenseless or surprised, and then they hear, this uh, This orc has no idea that you're here. There's that sort of, oh, two 2 plus 2 is 4, I know exactly what I should do for my next move moment in the ranger's mind. And for thieves as well. For thieves they as well, yeah, for a backstab. Yeah. Um, and then to that point, if we look at some of the ranger advanced moves, they get stealthier and stealthier, more and more able to take people by surprise as their power grows, as their level grows. Which means that there's sort of a balancing effect of, as they get more and more used to the fact that this is something in their toolbox, they also pick up new ways to use it.
1: I've seen uh, reworks of the Ranger playbook that lean into this idea a little more, that I quite like. Um, There are Ranger playbooks that uh, let you play the Ranger, but not have the animal companion from start, and like, elect the animal to have an animal Mm -hmm. companion as like a level up move, because not everyone who's into the Ranger idea wants to have like they companion, and they replace those basic moves with things that go a lot more along this line. It's like the ranger is like the expert hunter mm-hmm. with things that let them set traps, with moves that let them uh, pull out the perfect piece of equipment, like sort of an upgraded version of adventuring gear where they, they have like a weapon for any situation or things that let them predict what the monster is going to do next, stuff like that, which is cool. Um, the the, th- the conversation that needs to be had, especially with new players sometimes when they're like, why can't I just kill this guy right in the head You know, if I rolled well, is the fact that we assume that your character is competent and is always trying to shoot to kill, you know, if that's the objective mm-hmm. or they're always fighting to the best of their ability, but so is the enemy. And, um, typically I'll let them do special combat maneuvers or disarming someone or, uh, hamstringing someone. I'll either give that per using special equipment. Like I, I typically leverage the forceful on messy tags. If you want to like slap something out of someone's hand and give a forceful weapon, mm-hmm. it's going to be a lot easier or on, um, crits, uh, in Dungeon World, a lot of times that's considered a 12-plus result. So mm. if you roll natural double sixes or um, your your modifiers push you over the 12-plus, I'll typically be more lenient with them um, narrating a more powerful effect, like knocking the enemy down, hitting something out of their hands, making the enemy um, mortally wounded. So even if they escape, they'll surely bleed out right. or something like that, or they'll leave a easy-to-follow trail. Those sorts of things, I definitely um, I, I put put them within the player's reach. That I'm not going to be like just because I say so, you're going to have to wail on this guy for six rolls. Um, If you roll a crit, like, uh, a lot of those things happen. And it gives you, um, uh, it changes the social contract at the table such that the players are often more okay with the game itself being more lethal. Mm -hmm. That if you let them sometimes kill enemies very quickly and dispatch them on, like, an amazing roll, the players will be okay if they themselves take grievous harm or actually lose a hand or something like that when they roll snake eyes and things like that that sometimes happen.
0: Right. One, uh, personally, I don't. I, I do not use critical fail or critical success in any of my tables. I think that there are ways to make it work, but in general, I like having the three categories of success and failure. But sure. I really do like when there's an opportunity at the, at the table for a move to be lethal right off the bat, regardless of damage roll or regardless of position, or you, know, or you know, because of positioning, because it follows from the fiction. One way to make players feel really powerful is to throw a bunch of disposable things at them and give them the opportunity to dispatch them as sort of a single move to deal with a whole bunch of them at a time or a single move to deal with one of them in particular. Even on a 7 to 9 or a 6 minus, you could describe how the fighter cleaves through the skeleton. But on a 6 minus, they cleave through the skeleton only to be set upon by six more who take advantage of the opening to dogpile on top. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. I, I definitely hope, and maybe at some point um, when we get guests on the show or something like that, but to really dive into the idea of mass combat mm. and and huge numbers of enemies and, ha- and how that can work in Dungeon yes, World. I think, so much I think the
0: mass combat episode needs to happen, if only because it's the single most discussed topic on the channel currently.
1: If you are on, like you should be, on the Dungeon World Discord and getting in all the fun action there... Mm-hmm. You can scroll through the podcast channel and see a lot of additional content and additional yes. uh, conversations that happen. I think recently there was several posts on there talking about different ways to approach mm-hmm. mass combat. So go and take a look there. But I think we're um, bursting our bursting at the seams for this episode, don't you oh, think? Oh, totally.
0: So if you enjoyed what we talked about today and want to put your own spin on it, let us know what you think either on the podcast channel on the Discord or by sending us an email at, play to find out at protonmail.com. That's play to find out p l a y t o f i n d o u t protonmail.com. Send it to our encrypted inbox and expect a reply out loud super secure. And if you are hip and new
1: aged and you want to uh, tweet at us, we definitely have a Twitter account set up that is um, play numeral 2 find out and you oh you can also get the links to the new episodes there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um I have been Eamon Voidlight on the Dungeon World Discord. And
0: I have been Arthur Art Projects on the Discord.
1: Thank you for joining us this week, and feel
0: free to borrow, steal, and uh, make use of anything that you heard in this episode. It's been a pleasure having you at the table today. See you next week.